Well, good morning. If you want to grab your copy of God's Word, book of Nahum, the prophet. Nahum is a minor prophet near the end of the Old Testament. As you flip there, I'll just make a few comments that, you know, in today's service, I feel extremely affected. I feel like it's it's one of those where I've had my my empty bag where I need the good news. It's, it feels already full as I stand up here to continue to do that for us. And so um, if you flip there, I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to read it and and dive into the prophet Nahum. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we've admitted so much in this service, we're very needy people and that never changes. And so we come and open up your words and we hope to receive from you. So give us ears to hear. God, give us minds to comprehend your word, to understand it. Use it to change us and give me strength for uh, this task. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So if you're in Nahum, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 through verse 7. An oracle concerning Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Amen. We praise God for his word. And, you know, you may know this. Nahum is not Nahum. So I may say Nahum, Nahum. I'm not sure what will come out through this sermon. It's it's Nahum, uh, but it's just naturally you, you want to pronounce the H so strongly, and the U and all that stuff. But it's not been a very often preached book. and it's very interesting because one would think that a book that is all about justice and the rescue and the saving of the oppressed would be very, very popular. And I know I say that facetiously, but in all honesty, every major news headline in our respective counties even, all across the world, the buzzword is justice. But the problem is that there happens to be a confusion about what justice is and how to ensure that it is served. And so we label each other bigots and we label each other haters because we all disagree about what justice is. And I'm sure some of you may sit in here today having been persecuted or acted you know, wrongly towards because your view or belief of something is different from the world or the modern culture. But we do the same thing with God's truth. We are offended by what he says about us. 
We are offended about how he tells us that we are wrong and how we are not right before him. We're all alarmed by his judgment because it doesn't feel right. Something that we like or what we desire or what we want, he says it's wrong and we hate that. We're taken back by words like wrath and vengeance. And we naturally think this doesn't describe God. It shouldn't describe a good God. We hear these words like vengeance and we immediately push back as if it were unjust or uncalled for that God would have vengeance on his adversaries, only proving our insensitivity to our own sin, to other people's sin, and to the holiness of God. So we suppress the truth and we create gods of our own. Ever since the fall, we have been creating gods of our own by virtue of our pursuit of autonomy. We want to decide what's right and wrong for us. We want to decide what is good and and what is bad. But God has determined those things. We want a God who's going to bless us, not be full of wrath. But we cannot ignore, brothers and sisters, the wrath or the refuge, the judgment or the grace of God. Yes, these are hard and these are weighty matters. They're not popular but they are comfort and they are hope for God's people. Big idea that we're going to work through today, God is good and his justice is a comfort to those who take refuge in him. So we have a good bit to talk about in order to arrive at that conclusion. How this holy and just God can be a refuge for sinners. So let's begin. Most of chapter one is Nahum describing God, the character of God. And the way I break down the seven verses that we're going to consider in our time together, Nahum describes God in three primary ways. And so what we're going to do is we're going to work through these verses. We're going to pull out the three ways that Nahum describes God. And then we're going to talk about them in light of the sure doom of Nineveh, how that is an encouragement and hope for Israel how all of that fits into redemptive history and what we are taught in all of that. So that's our plan for today. And so if you're tracking with me, put your eyes on verse one and we'll talk about a few things. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. A few things. When, it, when the prophets open up and the description is an oracle concerning whoever, it's basically, it's judgment from God on this foreign nation. That's what an oracle usually represents when you uh, kind of flow through the minor prophets. And when it's talking about the book of the vision of Nahum, this is basically representing that he is a prophet of God. God has given him something and he's communicating this vision that, he, that God has given him. Not much is known about Nahum. They think he's from Galilee and nobody really knows where Elkosh is, you know, objectively. So they, they say it's a few places, but most of them land in Galilee. The point, it doesn't matter, honestly, about who Nahum is or or anything that would, you know, make him legit. The fact is, these are God's words, and he's declaring to Nineveh God's judgment. So we begin from there, and we jump into verse 2. Also, excuse me, we'll go back and talk about Nineveh a little bit. So Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. And we know little about this place because its history lies so far in the past and the destruction of it was absolute, never to be inhabited again. So Genesis 10, 11, 
we went through this not too long ago. It tells us that Nimrod, the great warrior, was responsible for the first empire. And two of the main principalities of that empire were Babylon and Nineveh, or Syria, if you will. To contextualize these two cities, Babylon and Nineveh, Babylon is known prototypically as the, the secular city. And Nineveh represents human violence and conquering. J.M. Boyce describes Babylon and Nineveh this way. Babylon stands for the warfare of man against God, and Nineveh stands for the war of man against his fellow man. And so we knew, again, we know little about the history, the early history of Assyria and Nineveh, but there's really no coherent history of it until they come in contact with Israel in about the middle 1800s. And they eventually take over the northern uh, the northern part of Israel, the northern tribe, and a few things about Nineveh to, to, about Nineveh to finish this. Nineveh was surrounded by a wall eight miles in circumference. It's 100 feet tall and so wide that three chariots could race around the top of it. There was 1,200 towers and 14 gates, and beyond that was a much larger wall, and beyond that was, was very extensive suburbs. And so Jonah, in chapter 3, verse 3, calls this wide expanse a three-day's journey. Jonah, a hundred years before this, had preached the truth to Nineveh reluctantly, and God withheld his wrath because they repented. But obviously, we're reading the prophet Nahum because that repentance didn't last long. These architectures, the armies, the riches, this magnificent city grew rich from the nations it conquered, relentlessly plundering men, women, children, all resources they had. Nineveh had led God to say, I am against you. God in his sovereignty was using an expanding empire, Assyria, to discipline Israel. But they left the equity and the morality of God and were full of lust in this desire for expansion and power. And so this great civilization that existed essentially from the beginning of time with unparalleled strength and splendor, would come to an end, never to be inhabited again. All because, verse 2, the first way that we see God described by Nahum. The Lord is jealous and full of vengeance. The Lord is jealous. He's an avenging God. He's avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he keeps wrath for his enemies. Referring back to uh, our displeasure and our uneasiness with God's judgment, have you ever considered, though, how the grace and the mercy and the patience of God is aroused in the context of an offense? So we love his grace and we, we love his love and his mercy. But why would a God have to have mercy? Because we have offended him. So we love to think about his mercy but we hate to think about it in context of his holiness and how he has to judge evil. If God is good, he must punish wrong. He is holy and wrath must exist for those who are against what is good. So in relation to his jealousy, it's not like ours. Fundamentally, humans are jealous for something that's not theirs. We are oppressive about our jealousy. It's not ours, we want it, we're envious. But this isn't true of God. 
One writer says, in us, jealousy is a form of coveting, claiming that which is not ours. In God, jealousy is a form of protecting and guarding that which is precious to God, both his character and his covenant people. God will not give his glory to another. Isaiah 42 verse 8 says, He is jealous for his own name and for the people who call him by name and who he calls by their name. Michael Horton says this, The God who possesses creation exercises his covenant lordship by giving rather than possessing, by sanctifying rather than hoarding, by spending rather than saving his wealth. It's God's jealousy for his people, in fact, that underscores his love and eventuates their salvation. So Nahum begins this prophecy with the jealousy and the wrath of God. He proclaims to Nineveh that God is armed with vengeance for his enemies. God is not emotionally explosive as to destroy in in a moment every time he reacts against sin. He is sovereign and he has control of his wrath. He has a plan and he's not forgetful about his wrath. He stores up wrath for his enemies, and this is eventually why Nineveh ceases to exist, which brings us to the second way that God is described in these first seven verses. In verse three through five, the second way is that the Lord is patient and great in power. The Lord is gracious. I mean, the Lord is patient and great in power. In verse three, he says, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. It's almost as if Nineveh is looking at Israel. The God whom they once feared, feared his judgment and they repented. It's almost like they're looking and and if they're saying to Israel, "If, if this God be full of wrath and full of vengeance, then why are we so mighty? Why are you in chains and kept like dogs in a kennel? Why are you the dirt beneath our feet? Why are your wives our concubines? Why are your children our slaves? Why are you so oppressed? Why are we so powerful? Nahum is proclaiming how the Lord is avenging and his patience with the wicked should not be presumed upon. The guilty will not go unpunished. This is the language of Exodus 34. He's slow to anger. The wicked will not be able to hide themselves on the day that God decides to pour out his wrath. God is not impartial. All wrongdoers will be punished. The guilty will be judged. Nineveh, you're not as mighty as you think. Because God is great in power, and the prolonged judgment of his upon the wicked is not due to a lack of power on God's part. It's due to the slowness of his anger. second half of verse 3, his way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. When God decides to act, the world is put into confusion. His way is whirlwind, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Nahum continuing to show that the Lord is great. He's in the heavens. He's high. He's mighty. He's lifted up. His feet are on the clouds that we look up to and can never touch. He is above Psalms 115, 3 that we said this morning, he is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Nahum then goes on to use examples of God's saving graces to Israel in 4 through 5. And how he intervenes in nature 
to bring salvation and to bring victory to Israel. And so if you look at verse 4, he rebukes the seas and makes it dry up. He dries up the rivers. Sounds a lot like when God parted the Red Sea and Israel made it safely through and he unparts it and God's enemies are destroyed in the waters. Or like in Joshua 3 and 4, when they walk across the Jordan. Looking at the second half of verse 4, Bashan and Carmel wither, the bloom of Lebanon withers. To not go into unnecessary detail, I think these are places of luscious vegetation. And when God sends his desert heat, they wither. Luscious vegetation that no one can destroy. God sends a wind and it all withers away. Immovable mountains. See in verse 5, the mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Immovable mountains quake into crumbles. Hills melt away. The earth trembles before our God. So verse 6, if this is true of nature, then what mere mortal could stand against God's displeasure? Verse 6, who could stand against his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. God is a consuming fire, Hebrews tells us, who feels indignation every day, Psalm 7, verse 11. He feels it towards the wicked. God has hated wickedness, Psalm 45, 7, and is angered all day to those who are not perfect. He will therefore destroy sinners in the day of judgment, Psalm 5 and 6. It's filled with God's righteous anger against unwickedness. There is an infinite distance between us and God. And to truly consider this is to be filled with dread because no human being, no sinful human being, which is all of us, can see God and live. For he alone is holy, Revelation 15, verse 4. And Habakkuk says that God is of purer eyes and he cannot even look upon wrongdoing. He cannot even look upon a sinner. What a dreadful thought because you and I break his law from birth to death. According to his word, all will stand before him to be judged, righteous or unrighteous. Which leads us to verse 7, the third and final way that Nahum describes God in the verses that we're considering today. The Lord is good, a stronghold in times of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. It is obvious here in the first seven verses, Nineveh is doomed. The Lord said, I'm against you. He's made up his mind. He's decided to act. That's it, folks. Say your goodbyes. And he will save Judah. Judah will not be overtaken and destroyed by Nineveh. The northern kingdom may have failed. Judah will not be overtaken. But why, though? Can we consider that for a second? Why would he have mercy and come down and stop Nineveh and save Judah? Are they perfect? Have they deserved his salvation. I mean, they're in this situation because of their disobedience. Do they not deserve God's judgment? Are they pure? Well, if God's words are true, 
that the thoughts and the intentions of man's heart are only evil continually, then we're all cursed. We all deserve judgment. And Paul says in Romans chapter 3, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and the Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. Known their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes, describing every human being that has ever lived. Oh God, if we tried, if we tried to rest, if we tried to Sorry, guys. If we tried the rest of our lives to keep God's law and be zealous for his glory, we could not atone for our sins. If we wept for all eternity for our sins, we could not atone for them because we cannot remove them. Brothers and sisters, we have distorted God's original design and we are not right before him. We are wrong. But God promised one who would come and save his people from judgment. He made a covenant with Abraham that he would make nations out of him and that all the families of the earth would be blessed by him. The nation of Israel was born of Abraham and from those people came the tribe of Judah, which from those people came a shepherd boy named David. And God promised an everlasting king would come from his line, from David's line, who would sit on an everlasting throne to rule an everlasting kingdom, and God's plan would not be thwarted. And so it's time for him to have wrath on Nineveh and save Judah. Judah is in trouble, and God seems silent. Nineveh, this once repentant, God-fearing city, now an immoral, idolatrous, arrogant beast, and seems closer to Judah than God. A few verses later, Nahum tells Judah, remember your feasts. Those feasts would point them to the promised Messiah. He says, remember your feasts. Hey, Judah, the Lord is jealous for his name. He is jealous for his covenant people. He is patient with his anger, but he is powerful and he is good. And he is your impenetrable fortress in times of trouble because he knows those like you who take refuge in him. It's not because of your faithfulness, Judah. It's not because of your perfection, but because of his steadfast love and faithfulness to accomplish the redemption of his people that he is coming to judge Nineveh. His wrath for Nineveh and his protection of Judah is because he is jealous for his own people. God's jealousy underlines his love and results in the salvation of his people. I know we're kind of moving quickly through this, but Nineveh is just a type of the enemies of God's people. Satan, the great accuser and deceiver, is God's enemy, is our enemy. The price, I mean the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, the law which once condemned us, our still so sinful hearts, this body of death that we still live in, 
the wicked God-haters that fill this world and all the consequences of the fall. These are our enemies. These are the enemies of God's people, but God is a shelter for sinners because of Christ. For you, weak ones, for you, lovers of self and haters of God, for you, lawbreakers, for you, people haters, for you, sexually immoral, envious ones, for you, self-righteous people, for you, poor, abused, and hurt sinners, while you were enemies of God, he reconciled you to himself. The king of glory came as a lowly servant, born in an animal stable. The one in whom true Israel hoped for, our redeemer, was born God in the flesh. The one who hung the stars is lying helpless in a maiden's arms. Learning to walk upon the ground that he had made. He was at home among the poor. Although he was the creator and owner of it all. Tempted as we were yet without sin. Fulfilling all righteousness. The healer hung on a tree. Cursed for sinners. He shielded us, his enemies, from the wrath of God. Oh, the riches of Christ, brothers and sisters, the mercy of God. God accepts Christ's sacrifice for sin on our behalf. And he did not stay dead, but he walked out of the grave alive with resurrection power. And he gifted us his crown and his robe of righteousness so that we would be with him forever, sealing us with his Holy Spirit for the day of redemption when all things will be made new. This salvation is not earned. It's not earned by who you were, who you are, or who you would become. It's not worked for, it's not kept by you. It's all of grace. It's all a gift received through faith. All the plan of redemption from the beginning of time accomplished by Christ. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the times of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Wash me, Savior, or I die. While I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyes shall close, Close in death when I soar to worlds unknown and see thee on thy judgment throne, rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Hallelujah. Hebrews 9, verses 13 and 14 say that if the blood of goats and bulls 
and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctified for the, for the purification of the flesh. How much more with the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify your, our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Brothers and sisters, in the Lord Jesus, Christ turns away the wrath of God forever. Forever. Because Jesus turns away the wrath of God against his people for all eternity, God's vengeance is no longer a dread, but a comfort. We no longer dread it, but it now becomes our comfort because we are in the rock of ages. Vengeance is not on us. And so what we've done up to this point is by not ignoring the wrath and the jealousy of our God, which Nahum is proclaiming to Nineveh, we learn how they actually become comfort and hope for God's people. Like we said at the beginning, God is good, and his justice is a comfort for those who take refuge in him. So as we conclude our time together, I want to think, I want to offer two devotional thoughts from what we've considered today and how this fits into redemptive history, what we're taught in all of this. Number one, because of all of what we've considered, we are not now little judges. We herald mercy. We are not little judges. We herald mercy. Here's what I mean. We've not been grafted into the family of God, the kingdom of redemption, to bring the judgment of God. We've been engrafted in to now offer the mercies of Christ. The church has been given the message of reconciliation. You and I have been given this message of reconciliation, and we tell the world of the one who knew no sin but became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. Now, although we aim to lift the oppressed among us and we pursue justice for all, it is not our job to exact God's judgment. God is the just and wise one. For example, we would not know what to do with his judgment. He destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah completely for their iniquity, yet Jonah goes and preaches the truth and we, he holds his wrath back, all just to finally send it another time. We do not, we do not have the, the wisdom of God. We're not asked to have the wisdom of God. We're not gifted with that. We're gifted with salvation to be heralders of the mercies of Christ. And so, because of the gospel, we do not receive his vengeance. We run around here proclaiming to the world the mercies that are in Christ. It's a little bit repetitious, but judgment is in God's arena, not ours. Like we learned from the second half of Ephesians, it is true, right? that we use the law to expose sin, to expose how the judgment of God is coming against ungodliness. And it's going to rain down on all ungodliness, but we are not the ones who bring that. We are the ones who expose that and offer Christ every time, all the time. So while we long to see God make all things right, and we long to see him bring things to justice, all the enemies of God would be crushed, we run around here offering mercy. We're not little judges. We herald mercy. 
Thought number two, we cling to what we know and we trust the goodness of God. There's a lot that we don't know about how God operates in history and how he judges things this side of redemption and this side of eternity. I don't know. We're not told. I can't call it how he operates. But we cling to what we know and we trust the goodness of God throughout the history. As, we've, as many times have been said in today's service, the cry has always been, how long, O oh Lord? How long will you either leave us in this situation or how long will you let the wicked run free? You name it. As Judah is like calling out, how long, O oh Lord? Are you just going to be idle while Nineveh approaches to destroy us? We know you're faithful, but we're in trouble. We're scared. And the words of vengeance and wrath and the power of God bring great comfort to Judah, who take refuge in God. And so likewise, God's vengeance can comfort us. Not only are we haunted by our consciences and our still so sinful desires and heart, but the wicked in this world seem to prosper. There's so much corruption in governments. Innocent people die all the time. There's sickness and curses of the fall that plague us. Christians are persecuted all around the world. Bad things plague all of you. How is he presently judging and working his history? Again, I don't know, but we can say a few things for certain. His common grace is experienced by the righteous and the wicked because he is slow to anger. The rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. In general, another thing is that the reality of the world is you reap what you sow. I'm not talking about in terms of redemption, but in general, if you don't kill somebody, it probably will go well for you. If, you, if there's obedience to his law and to his morality, things in a general sense go okay. Bad things don't happen. You won't go to jail. We, don't, we do know, thirdly, that he is sovereign. And he's full of jealousy and wrath and vengeance and power. And he is good. And he is a refuge for his own people. Now, this is important. God is our refuge. This is articulated in a lot of ways in our culture. God being our refuge. And I'm afraid that the most popular ways that it's articulated are not biblical ways. It's always about earthly prosperity. But God being our refuge in this life, brothers and sisters, does not mean that we are not going to experience pain and suffering. It does not mean that your sickness goes away or that you will no longer feel bad or have mental emotional issues. It doesn't mean that all marriages stay together or all relationships go the way they should. It doesn't mean that you're going to get the job that you hope for. It doesn't mean that all your goals in life are going to be met and you're going to accomplish them. If you do, it's, you know, enjoy them. That's not what refuge in God means. God being a refuge for his people in this life means this. No matter what happens to you in this life, Christ is interceding for you and your father is never deaf to hear his case for you. It means that there is now therefore no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. It means that the Holy Spirit himself is bearing witness with our spirits that we are children of God. It means that 
Although we have no clue what to pray oftentimes, the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So if you start to pray and stutter, welcome to the club. Life is hard. It means that God is working all things in your life for your eternal good, meaning that he predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son. It means that he called you, and those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. In Christ, not only are we good with God now, but there is a promise of glorification. We will make it, he promised, because he is our refuge. God being our refuge means that nothing, I mean nothing, God means nothing, will separate us from his love. Not tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, nor death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor death, nor any else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is good. He is a refuge for his people. When we gather, when God gathers all the nations to bring final judgment to all of his enemies, and he separates the wicked, the wicked from the righteous, he will pass over us because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, I imagine that there are still some in this room who feel a bit emotionless about the gospel, but they know that your words are true. Father, we know that it is not how we feel about your truth that saves us, but it is Christ alone that saves us. So for those who are weak in the room and they feel that they're just fighting with everything they have to believe, Father, would you hold them, comfort them, remind them that Christ is enough for righteousness and for forgiveness. It's not about the strength of our faith, but the fact that we have it. Father, use these words to build us up into Christ and build us up in love for one another as we seek to offer mercy to each other and mercy to this world. Father, unify us around this gospel. Help us not to forget it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.